Today on Never Was a Gamer, it's a cozy holiday episode. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me is that old chestnut himself, Dimitri. An old chestnut? Yeah, you're like a old, that good old chestnut. I don't even know what that means. It's, you're like a reliable I'll, standby. I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah, it is, for once. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I'd like to neg you a little with these, but that one was meant to be good. Well, great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. On what is not the final episode of our season, but it is a bit of an interlude, it's our second holiday special. Yep, we both love the holidays and very much look forward to this sort of end of year reflection, looking backwards, looking forwards, all that kind of stuff. Ranking things. Ranking things. Judging things. There's no better (laughs) time to judge things than the holidays. Games, friends, family. Exactly. (laughs) It is the most judgmental time of the year. And we are going to do honor to that yeah. today. But maybe before we do that, have you been have you been playing anything that is festive this year? I know, you know, last time we talked about certain things we like to play around the holidays. I mentioned I really like to play cozy JRPGs mm-hmm. either in the lead up to Christmas or right after Christmas. This year, though, I don't think either of us, as far as I know, is playing anything particularly jolly. If anything, I think you're playing things that are kind of the opposite. Yeah. Um. I mean, so this year, the way it's working out for me, I... There, there's the the part of the year that is wrap up and playing cozy stuff, but also the the sort of winter holiday break is always the sort of free space in my mind where I can mentally schedule myself to play games that I haven't been able to get to through the year. So like this winter break, I'm really looking forward to playing the Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade, which I still haven't oh, gone okay. back to. That's kind of jolly. Yeah, um, I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to spending some time finishing up Inscription. That is seems less jolly. Uh, no, it's it's a little out of season, but <laughs> I love that game. That's something like, I need to I, get to. That is, I think that's a strong contender for my game of the year in, you know, outside of this show and like contemporary stuff. Um, but I'm only a handful of hours into it. And so I just can't wait to have time to sink into that. You know what I mean? It's the perfect, it, especially between uh, Christmas and New Year's is sort of just this dead zone where like, no one asks anything of me. It's just like downtime. And so I cannot wait to sink into some of these things that I've been putting off and meaning to get to and just haven't had time. How about you? Yeah. Um, well, I just wrapped up Deathloop, which again, not not <laughs> the most festive, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, maybe we can talk about this in a future episode. I also played Unpacking. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, I started that one too. Yeah, which is a little bit more festive but but here's the thing and maybe maybe we can have like a, a what you're playing wrap up uh, some other time but uh, if, if people aren't familiar so this is this is a game that could be on our interesting mechanics episodes mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. it's it's a, a game where you really spend time exploring the life of this person by unpacking their boxes as they move you know over the course of their life i think from it's from what like teenage yeah like, like teenage bedroom up through college and early childhood bedroom up yeah through, yeah up through college up through beyond yeah um which i know you haven't gotten there yet and you know it's i think it's a really interesting way to tell a story 
And it's kind of really effective how much you can do just storytelling through really just, you know, taking objects out of a box. Yeah, there's no text in this game. No. And, and you know, the way that objects repeat themselves and have different meanings in different in different time periods or objects that don't come with you or... Um, how objects, how you, how you can place the objects in the space, depending on who you're living with at the moment. All that I think is really great. I don't like the main character. <laughs> Too cute. Just, it, just no, just like a bad roommate. Oh, like this character oh who God. you play as, just brings moving into a small apartment with a roommate, like a college roommate, let's yeah. say, or right after college, just brings all their shit with them. <laughs> There's no room in the place. What are, oh, what like, are you calling oh, your shit? Like what I, object? I, I really name some. I, I really need to bring my cookie jar, my big ass cookie jar. We don't have a lot of counter space, but I really, I, I really need oh my, my cookie jar to come with me. I, it's I don't know. It, it was my grandma's. It really just needs to take up this. Uh, you know, you can put the toaster up on the fridge because my my cookie jar. Dimitri is the least into sentimental objects decorating a space of anyone I've ever met. I just, I really need that cookie jar. And there's there's multiple cookie jar type objects. Oh that just makes you say, he says, it just makes you say, grow up, lady. <laughs> Get over this yourself. Like- or, or it's very clear that she still has her childhood bedroom. Like it, okay. it's revealed later. Okay. It's not converted. So just leave some stuff there. Most of your stuffed animals, your, your family of chickens can probably stay at the childhood bedroom. Not real chickens, stuffed chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I assumed. And your cookie jar. You could find a practical use for the cookie jar. You could put all your like big cooking utensils in it, like your spatulas and stuff. You know that cookie jar stays empty. You know that doesn't even have cookies in it. <laughs> but part of being a person is your attachment to things. Like the the bond that part of that that game is about the bond that you form with part of being an physical objects and the putting the aside meaning material that, culture the meaning that you imbue those things with well, um, by virtue of the journey they go on with you oh my god so yeah a, a great great game I think everybody should play it um, but yeah and and I mean the fact that you know I felt a certain way about the character I think just speaks to how successful that game is that you know right right of actually doing character development without ever really seeing the character and just dealing with the objects. But I didn't like her. But you like the game, but not her. Yeah. Okay. You can always like games where you don't like the character. That's, oh, I say absolutely. most games. Absolutely you can. And I actually found it more interesting that I didn't like the character, because especially uh, since I assume most people would. Right. And aren't quite as crotchety as, as me. You know who I think this girl is in some ways is like the person who was in the Undertale fandom. Okay, now see you're you're making it personal now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. It's that it, like she's got these sort of like um, uh, geek or fan culture objects that come with her through a certain period. There's like a I don't know, but and there's like a sweetness to a lot of it. Yeah, I don't know. I I like what I've played of that game as well, and I just find it so funny that did we did we mention that the holidays are a time to be the most judgmental? Yeah, <laughs> we're just gonna, we're really gonna hammer that point home in this episode. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's a good segue into. Our awards are the first few of our awards. So if you remember last time, and if you haven't listened to our holiday episode, uh, our first one from last year, please go listen to it. It's a it's a great way to kind of wrap up the year. And if you hadn't listened to the previous episodes, I think you know you get a sense of what Michelle's takes were on a lot of these games. And at the end, she did a a, a, a kind of a tier ranking of all the games, and we'll mm-hmm. we'll do another one today. But you know, we we have to wrap up the year, finding themes throughout the year, and uh, our first. Our first award 
is a theme that also resonated with a lot of games from last time. This is a yeah. this is a recurring award. And it's our award for the naughtiest boy. Can I predict? I think we will always have a naughtiest boy award. Games are full of naughty boys. Oh my god. Gaming culture is full oh of naughty god. boys. Nonstop. And uh, we have a great list of nominees this year. We have The Prince of All Cosmos from Katamari Damashi. We have Wario from WarioWare. So naughty. A classic naughty boy. Uh, we have uh, Switchblade Kelly, Michelle's creator wrestler from <laughs> WWF No Mercy. You gotta let him know. You <laughs> uh, have Metaton from Undertale. We have Crash Bandicoot himself, especially when he's doing the eyebrows at that warthog. He fucks that warthog. <laughs> Then, There's no other way to read that. And finally, we have David Cage. Yeah, just the guy. So, Michelle, who is your winner for The Naughtiest Boy? And just so the listener knows, Michelle has made all these conclusions. Is These these awards are from Michelle's perspective. Oh, this, I don't this know. This is the, like, does not represent the views not, of the show. No, and uh, <laughs> I might be surprised by some of these answers, and uh, I might have my own alternate award winner, <laughs> but the official award winners are determined by Michelle. So, who is Naughtiest Boy 2021? So... I think what this comes down to is really the definition of the naughty boy category. Okay. For me, David Cage, especially by the time he gets, you know, accused of some labor abuses, you've moved outside the naughty boy scope and, and you know, you're a little bit closer to being just a jackass at that point. Okay. Like, I think naughty boy has to have a playfulness. Would we say the same thing about Crash getting intimate with an animal? A little bit. And I think I think that game works too hard to convince you that he's like naughty and rad and cool. And that try hardness, I think, also, you know, prevents him from rising to the top okay. of this category. You know, I think the other four are all classic naughty boys. I almost gave this to the Prince of All Cosmos, but he's more of a little stinker than <laughs> okay. a naughty boy, which I think is a little different. I cannot avoid the conclusion that Wario is simply the ultimate video games naughty boy. I don't know that we'll ever find a naughtier boy. He's tricking his friends into doing game making labor for him. He's making these little troll games, changing up the rules without telling you. You know, he also he appeared across a number of the games that we played this year and was naughty in all of them, frankly. He is consistently naughty. And then uh, once you add the flatulence later on in his career. Yeah. Yeah, he's just okay. he, he's the 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 ultimate naughty boy, and deserving, he has to win this category. Deserving winner. Yep. Naughtiest boy, Wario from WarioWare. Yep. Our, our next category is it's also about kind of being naughty and being a boy. This is the the bad dad award. Another recurring category, <laughs> I think. And so we have uh, four nominees here for bad dad award twenty twenty one. King of all cosmos from Katamari, Zeus. From God of War, Ethan from Heavy Rain, Sean, and then Vince McMahon from WWF No Mercy. Okay, so Vince McMahon is a bat is like a super bad dad figure, but again, I think he has the David Cage problem where like he just is too much of an unambiguous villain in real life. You mean? Yeah, okay. in real life, so, and I can't help but read that into you know I can't help but let that cross over in something like WWF No Mercy. So I have to think that I also, you know, Ethan, I think is is a, a shitty dad. I think he's a very lackluster dad, but then he also goes through hell to try to get his kid back. So and I think Zeus is just an asshole also all around. I really 
the bad dad award. I want someone who is whose badness is rooted in their dadness. You know what I mean? <laughs> who's not just a bad person who happens to be a dad. And so we got to go with the king of all cosmos. Okay. He is such a bad dad. It rules. He's like constantly being like, oh, son, you should go visit this beautiful place I've been. Like, that's possible. Ha 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 ha. He's like grating and super judgmental towards you about everything you do. And he's like sending you on his little missions to bust up everything in the entire world. What a bad dad. What a bad dad. He's got his David Bowie bulge right in your face the entire time. Inappropriate. I love him, but that's a bad dad. <laughs> great. Okay. Great, great choice. I'm not going to disagree here. Bad dad 2021, king of all the cosmos. Yeah, man. Um, so our next award is another recurring award. This is a this is another judgmental award. Maybe the extra judgment, the most judgmental of all the awards. So what we call the Gamers Are Wrong Award, where Michelle has a beef to pick with general consensus around a certain issue related to gaming. And uh, this year, we have a lot of characters, actually, yeah. uh, as part of the nominees. You know, the characters are anchors for larger, you know, more high-minded disagreements. Okay, so your first your first nominee you have listed here is Crash Bandicoot, which I assume you mean the character and also the game yeah. being good. They all suck shit. <laughs> Next. Okay. You have Kratos. I mean, we know my feelings about Kratos. That yeah. guy... That we, guy. we have an episode on that if you, need to, if you need to unpack that. Yeah. Um, similarly, we have an episode dedicated to your dislike of this character, Alphys. We didn't dedicate the whole episode to that. I, In the title of the episode. Yeah, well, but the conversation about it is like, so I think Alphys is in some ways the hinge of a, a lot that doesn't work for me in, mm -hmm. in Undertale, um, even though I think so much about that game is so strong. And so... You just think there's a kind of an uncritical... Um, adoration from the fandom of Alphys. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, she's not as famous or iconic of a character as like Sans, obviously, who sort of becomes the face of Undertale. But I think, I think so much of so much of what doesn't sit right with me about the the last third of that game sort of centers around this this character. So you know, I sorry, but you, you guys are wrong and about Alphys. And then the fourth nominee. Is James Bond being cool? He is such a horny dork, which is <laughs> fine, but he's presented as like Captain Smooth guy. It's uh, it's like unfathomable to me how anyone ever looked at this character and we're like, well, ladies, man, you mean specifically so the Pierce Brosnan? I mean the Bond that is present in both Goldeneye the film and also Goldeneye 007, the game that we played. Okay, he's not cool. He's like clumsy. He's running around. He massacres thousands of guys. Well, over, like. Just corpses That's everywhere. That's your playthrough. That's everyone's playthrough. You're clumsy. Who's doing like a pacifist run of Goldeneye? Bond is cool. Good Lord. What We're going to rename this the Demetrius Wrong Award. <laughs> so what is, it, what is your winner? So simply because I had to sit and not say anything as literally 95% of the people that I know and respect in games gushed over God of War, the recent one that everyone said was like the best game that's ever okay. been made. And I knew, I knew in my soul so, that they were wrong. And, but I couldn't say anything about it yet because I hadn't played any well, of them. Well, you still hadn't played well, that Well, listen, I'm still talking. <laughs> now, when I have gone back and played God of War 2, I, my soul is filled with the righteous light of being so correct in all of my prejudices. And... You know, even the the parts of God of War, is it 2019, 2018? 2018. 2018. 
that I watched you play, I see the same character. Like he's he's grown, he's got a different thing going on, but that's the same dude. And I'm still right about him. God, it feels so good to be so right about this character. <laughs> okay, so Kratos in both God of War 2 and the 2018, which Michelle has not played. In so far, all iterations. Gets gamers are wrong award. Do you, do or you, gamers are wrong. I guess the gamers get the award. Yeah. Like they are wrong about Kratos. Here you go, everybody. Here's your award for liking Kratos stupidly. Okay, but do you personally feel that, do you understand why I hate Kratos in God of War 2? And do you feel that he's different enough in God of War 2018 that I am wrong? I understand why you hate him in God of War 2. I feel like they try to contend with that Kratos in 2018. I don't necessarily agree that they're successful. And that's a bigger discussion than we can have today. And maybe if you go and play that game, that's when we can have on the show if you ever the look you just gave me suggests you're not going to be playing that anytime soon we'll see we'll see how many Um, seasons we go for i think it's it's reflecting on that kratos sure but still having to be true to that kratos which is difficult because he is such an unbridled asshole right i i so i know in god of war 2018 the thing you hate the most is that he has to punch open the chest well no that's one emblematic thing that i hate that that is expressive of other problems but but you know like that is that is the essence of his character and that that will never change i don't think i have a question about 2018 does every single character that he meets friggin hate him on site from shit that he did to them previously the way that happens in god of war 2 well, I mean, they put him in a completely different mythology in <laughs> They're like, 2018. He's ruined every relationship with everyone in the Greek world. So we just have to like plop him into a different like universe where no one's met him. And there, But everybody <laughs> still kind of hates him. Okay, well. <laughs> I guess the, what is it, Sindri? The, the, the head? No. No? I mean, the, I guess the head also, I can't, the head also kind of likes him. But the, uh, like the blacksmith. Oh yeah, they yeah. They kind of yeah. get they get along okay. Um, the woman doesn't hate him immediately, but she comes to yeah. despise him. Yeah, 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 for reasons. <laughs> okay, okay, it's all right. So gotta... All right, all right, all right. It's Christmas. We can't be talking about Kratos the entire episode. <laughs> so our next word, I think, is something a bit more positive. Yeah, uh, we're calling this the Katamari Damashi presents second best soundtrack <laughs> award because we were going to do best soundtrack, but it's obviously Katamari. There's no point. There's no point. It's such a strong soundtrack kind of like an iconic soundtrack that it is it sits above all of these other soundtracks i think it's s tier it's like top three of all time i wouldn't want to rank like a a top of all time but katamari damashi would be in the conversation if i had to only pick one game soundtrack as the best of all time so we're going to do second best soundtrack yeah and so the nominees are bastion tony hawk pro skater but the original only, yeah. not the remastered version with your favorite Billy Talent song. <laughs> Undertale. And then you put on Omicron the Nomad Soul, which I have to believe, because you only played like, you know, an hour of it. I have to believe it's because of that David Bowie intro. So it is partially, and then it just had extremely good, like cyberpunky music vibes. Yeah, I think this is more of a like honorable mention than a full nominee. Okay. Like I'm not going to pretend this my experience of it stands toe to toe with frankly any of the other nominees in this category. But, you know, a little representation for our snap judgment episode games where we don't we don't give them tons of tons of time. Um and I think I think this was probably a pretty cool soundtrack. So, I mean, 
Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, I had such a fun time with the music in that game. I don't feel like I can fully, I feel weird about the idea of being something that mostly is licensed music. It's a terrific category. But but it, here's the thing. It's, you know, like crafting a soundtrack uh, based on licensed music is an art form in and of itself. Oh, the curation element yeah. of this as well, especially for something that so successfully bounces between genres. Like this is an incredibly diverse collection of curated mm-hmm. music um, that runs from punk, hip hop, like a, a whole bunch of stuff that somehow all feels right mm-hmm. at any given time. Um, so I do think that's an accomplishment. I also... Like, I just think Darren Corb, you know, the the number one hero, I think, of Supergiant is Gen Z and her art. Um, if there's a number two person, it's probably Darren Corb and what his soundtracks contribute to Bastion, Transistor, and Hades. The Hades soundtrack is so good. Yeah, we um, never played that other one. Uh, Pyre. Yeah. I'm very confident that it has good art and good music, honestly. But I I do feel with with Bastion, I really like that soundtrack, but it so many parts of it, I feel like I enjoyed implementation in Hades maybe more right, yeah. or there's there, some of um, some of the female vocals in Transistor are so great. And so I have to give this to Undertale. Just give it to Undertale. Yeah. Toby Fox deserves this. It's a great soundtrack. It's so good. It, again, does so much with so little. It adds so much to and this actually, game. I was actually feeling bad that we didn't mention the soundtrack yeah. that much when we actually talked about Undertale because it's such a strong part of the game and really gives the game its vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it got to be Undertale. Um, it just, again, it manages to have a lot of different mood, a lot of variation and diversity. A lot of ones that complement set pieces like the Metaton fight, like mm-hmm. like your encounters with Flowey, like these melancholy moments when you're having, you know, the castle in the background. Like it's just it's just wonderful. It's it's a real accomplishment in this game. Yeah. So with that, let's take a quick break, mostly so I can have an excuse to play more Undertale music. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll do uh the first part of our gift exchange. Yeah. And so we'll be right back. And we're back to do the first part of our gift exchange. So every year, Michelle and I each select a game that we think the other would enjoy. We surprise them with it. Mm-hmm. They go off and play it. And then we come back and discuss it here on, on the holiday episode. And so, Michelle, you can go first with the game that I gifted you. If oh, you want great. to introduce it. Yeah. So the the game that you selected for me was Umarangi Generation. Um, and I'm sure this is one that I'm going to have to describe because this is this is a game that I think got a lot of attention within a very small circle of of like indie leftists and like mm-hmm. not a lot of attention beyond that. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I selected it for you, um, because I know you had heard about it a lot and yeah. I know you had been thinking about it, but hadn't yet played it. 
and then I had played it and, you know, both in terms of what it does mechanically, I know you're always, you know, interested in games that have unconventional mechanics to do something different. I know you're kind of in the mood for something a little bit more low-key um, at this point of the year. And also you're often looking for something that is explicitly political in some way. I think you find those types of things interesting because so few games yeah. go there. And so I thought, you know, this was kind of the perfect the perfect package. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's very interesting that you describe this game as low key because I I both see where that's coming from and also Oh, it's depressing as hell, but it's low key mechanically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it's not it's not like a twitch shooter, you know, like you mm-hmm. have space to do what you want to do. I mean, you are bang on on all of these. I liked this game a whole lot. So let's describe what it is. Yeah. Um, So Umarangi Generation is created by, I think, a single guy who is... It's very small. Like, if there are others. Yeah. But it's primarily... Yeah. Maybe Toby Fox-style guy with some (laughs) help, you know, Um, who's working, I think, out of Australia, Maori by background, and this is set in New Zealand. And it's essentially a first-person photography shooter where the gameplay is moving through a set of spaces with basically a set of bounties, things that you have to find and take photographs of, uh, and you get paid for those. Um, and you're, that's really it in terms of the mechanics. You As you progress, you get more lenses, you can adjust more things about your photos, you get different, you know, zoom abilities and sort of it leans into some technical stuff about photography, which is really cool. And I haven't seen really explored like this in a game before. The other thing that you do, because I think this is this is a funny thing that actually crosses both of our games that there's a moment where you're like, wait, this is a platformer? Yes. (laughs) There's actually a lot of platforming in this. Yes. So I do, I think the platforming is clumsier, but better thematically in Umrangi than it is in the game that I gave Mm. you. Uh, One of the things that I like about the platforming here is that you're usually using it to get sort of out of bounds or a place where you feel like you're not supposed to go, Mm -hmm. which gives you this sort of like scrappy documentarian kind of feel as you're, you know, getting into these weird positions where you can line up this telephoto shot to get these three objects perfectly aligned. Like it's, it sort of leans into a bit of a spirit of like, uh, rebellion and and um, and like resistance. Oh, yeah. And I'll say why I use that word. I, I mean, um, yeah, that like, is core in this game. Yeah, like you know, I love me some Pokemon Snap. Right. I love Pokemon Snap. I love the new Pokemon Snap. This game, and I understand why Pokemon Snap is on rails. Yeah. And it would probably resonate differently if your guy could just like run through these like wildlife preserves. Yeah, stand directly over but, a little like. But being able to kind of actively move around and, you know, do this strategic platforming, which I love doing in in actual platformers to to set up shots was so much fun for me. And I think the reason why that works for me thematically in this game is we have buried the lead Mm -hmm. here. The spaces that you are moving through this are spaces in which a apocalypse is unfolding and as you go through this, you'll find out more about what the nature of that is, how the world is responding to that. And yeah, you, I think that thematically try- is like the biggest through line of this entire game. Yeah, I think we're going to try to avoid some really direct spoilers yeah. just because we would like to encourage everybody listening to go and play this game and, you know, experience it for themselves and uncover the its secrets for themselves. Yeah. 
Um, but this game is very much about the experience of living through the end of the world or the end of of humanity um, and doing these tasks of photography and and of being with people through that experience, which I found incredibly moving and incredibly beautiful. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, I think this game came out originally in 2019. Um, it actually came out in May 2020. But I mean, it was in development pre-pandemic. And I think you're right that it, it very much feels of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know a lot of it was in response to the Australian bushfires. Right. And so it's it's literally kind of, you know, reflecting on, on that and the the way the government responded or did not respond mm-hmm. to kind of that catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, climate change is clearly yes. on its mind. Yeah. And again, the way the governments are and are not responding to to climate change. Yeah, but it's it's so interesting to me, and I think the reason I'm primarily interested in it is that ultimately it's a game about conflict. It's it's a war game, or you could at least I think you could frame it as a war yep. game, a first person war game where your main verb is shoot. Yes, but completely rearticulating what all those pieces mean. Yeah, and I think you know reimagining what can happen in a first person space. That's for me what makes this game so interesting. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's doing all of the things. It's not, of course, okay, there have been other games where you could go into first-person photography mode. Yeah. But this is a game that's really trying to reflect on, you know, I think the politics of a lot of games that are in first-person, um, that genre in itself, the whole idea of what shoot can mean. Yeah. And the ways that photography can also be, it can be liberated, it can be creative, but it can also be violent, mm-hmm. I think is is part of this game. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's it's I think it's super interesting in how it's completely flipping a, a very popular genre on its head in a way that makes that genre more compelling for me to play. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I think one of the things that I kept coming back to while playing this game that I find most interesting is that you know even as someone who always loves to go slow and look at environments and pay a lot of attention. Like we've talked about this as being sort of a difference in some of, in how you play some games and how I play some games um, is I think I'm much more inclined to like really stop and, and, and look at things. Um, Even for me, I I found it so interesting the way this game trains you to look at the world, Mm -hmm. because it's very different from anything else I've experienced, even as someone who looks at game worlds, I think more than a lot of people, um, you know, some of the bounties that like the bounties that you're you're finding in terms of what you have to photograph to progress through levels isn't usually like the biggest, most obvious thing mm-hmm. in there. A lot of the times it's find and take a very close photo of this specific word mm-hmm. and it might be written on a sign. It might be in graffiti. It might be like on somebody's body. Like it, there's all different ways that can happen. Sometimes it's about finding particular alignments and recontextualizing things. So, you know, getting a certain set of jo- of objects in the same shot, even though they're not exactly close together and how that creates meaning. Like this is, this is training you to look at the objects in this world. Um, this is like the anti-Katamari Damashi where everything <laughs> just ends up becoming stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I've I've never felt like I was seeing a video game world as clearly as I felt like I saw the world in in Umurangi. Yeah, it has a great approach to environmental storytelling because the, the storytelling is done completely environmentally. Yeah, there's there's no like plot plot to this. There's no like voiced characters. There's no like 
And uh, yeah, and I think you're right that the way the bounties are set up strategically to force you to notice things that you would might otherwise miss mm-hmm. um, is, yeah, it's like a really elegant way to do environmental storytelling. And again, something that when I get to my game, we can talk about because I think my game tries to do a lot of the same things, but in a much less elegant way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there are some parts that some parts of like the quote unquote plot that you can't miss. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the apocalypse will be hard to if, miss. But if say. you're paying a modicum of attention as you go through and actually, you know, take the, you know, take the photographs that the game asks you to take. Yeah. You do get kind of this larger unfolding story that's told very clearly and cleanly. I think another thing that I really so j- just wrapping up the how this game directs your attention, I think. Another thing that I that really felt resonant for me is that so there's there's core bounties that you have to get to progress to be able to end the level. And then there's sort of optional ones that are like for extra points or if you want to challenge or whatever. And one of those ones in every space is take a photo, a group photo of your friends. Like Mm -hmm. in every space, you have these these three human friends and a penguin pen pen. Um, It's not literally pen pen, but, you know, I watched Evangelion for the first time this year also. And that's a little bit in the background of my mind for this. Um, and so it also in all this that is unfolding, despite not being a falsely optimistic game, it is also training you to always look for your friends and look mm. for your community and your people in in all of the the spaces where catastrophe is unfolding. Um, and I found that really moving, uh, particularly moving into the back half of the, of the game and how it resolves. But the other thing that I wanted to say is that this is one of the rare experiences I've had in games where I feel like this was developed. Th- this is partially what I liked about Night in the Woods also, which is that I felt like I was having the experience of um, playing a game and being in a world created by somebody who sees a lot of the same things that I see when they they look around. Like I, there's there's one there's one scene that you get to um, that you know I this isn't a big spoiler, but um, but in the DLC there's which also is packaged usually bundled in with the game now. So if you pick it up now, you'll probably get the DLC where it's sort of talking about um, how protest works at at this point. Uh, and I don't want to dig too much into this, but I I really feel like I haven't seen a lot of cases where I felt like. Um, a depiction of like demonstrations or riots or anything like that in a game reflected my experience of being present on the ground during like anti-globalization protests, which I have been in in my life. Like when things go bad, what does it feel like to be on the ground in, in that chaos? And what are the images that you see? And so it just felt like such a, it felt real. It made so many other depictions of, you know, societal unrest <laughs> or like the apocalypse just feel like baby clown shit (laughs) like it and so i really i really really appreciated that i like i felt i felt seen and spoken to even though you know i i'm coming from a very different context than a maori person who is who has had this their experience um but yeah and on top of that the aesthetics the fashion the music they all rule like it's very fun to look around in this space and one of the most interesting questions, I don't want to get into this too deep because I don't think we can talk this through without, you know, spoiling stuff that I wouldn't want to spoil because I really want people to play this. It is not long that you can probably get through this thing in two hours, maybe if you like mm-hmm. go at a good pace um, and have a great experience in that in one evening, you know, is 
I was I was constantly thinking about who am I taking these bounty who are these bounties for? Mm-hmm. Who is who are is my client or who are my clients? And how do I understand that based on where am I allowed to go in this world? Who's giving me permission to mm-hmm. get into certain spaces? Who has requested these photos? And that there's so much to dig into there about you know, how people are responding to this sort of end of the world moment, how people are taking roles in it, how that's impacting what they want to look at, what they will pay for, how entertainment works. There's so there's so much there. And that is such a such a subtle piece of the design of this game that I just absolutely loved. Um, Yeah, I will happily talk for as long as anybody wants separately about who we think the client of these of these. Do you want to talk about that? So one of the things that I was... Is it tra- Die Hardman? <laughs> I, I mean, maybe, like... This so- game, though, it, like, I, 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 that's a joke, but also this game is, like, the perfect wine pairing for Death Stranding. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, with actually, like, a much greater density and, like, <laughs> as you would expect, you know, gets to the point a little quicker. <laughs> um so I had this brainwave when you get to the level that's the hangar, where you're literally in this military hangar with what is clearly a huge, you know, sort of restricted access project that is is wide out in the open. And it's a small thing, but there's a there's a guide that's like, for deliveries, go here. And there's sort of a line on the wall that shows you where to go. And the symbol for where to, for like drop off deliveries is the exact same symbol that in every other level has signified where you go to like drop off your bounties mm-hmm. and end the level. So I have to conclude that at least a good number of your bounties are actually commissioned by like the military operation that is going on. And that explains some things like there are also directives of what not to photograph that makes sense mm-hmm. in hindsight when you have this context. Um and, you know, it suggests something about how this military operation is being communicated outwards. Like, okay, what's the use case for some of these photos I've been asked to take if if I take as a given the idea that at least for a lot of what I'm doing, if not all, like this military operation is my is my client. And I think that's interesting because for me, it recasts some of how I think about other people that I saw in the space and like had certain thoughts or like feelings or judgments about as we as we went through. Um and yeah, like there's something there's something like very resonant and very bittersweet for me about um like the value of like why would you be bothering to go through and take photos like at the end of the world, you know? Um and there's something about still being a person and still still even in the face of catastrophe, like feeling this need to document and to create and to be with your people and you know, all these things that don't aren't necessarily going to like solve the, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not a solution, but it's like an expression of the part of us that continues to like live and be present and be like soulful kind of, even in, in the face of, of disaster without turning that into some sort of like redemption or like, so, you know, will endure blah, blah, blah. Like it's not, it's not, there's no false optimism in this game. So yeah, from everything thematically, aesthetically, mechanically, I think this is really special. This is really impressive. Um, It's very unlike anything else that I've played, uh, despite having, as you mentioned, you know, the sort of basic controls of a first person shooter, Mm -hmm. um, break down to the sort of like scope and then take the shot Mm -hmm. is sort of like left trigger, right trigger. So yeah, this, this game is absolutely great. And you were absolutely right that I would like it.
Great. I'm glad. I'm really glad you liked it. And so with that, we'll take another break and do a few more awards. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back to hand out a few more end-of-the-year awards. Our next award we're calling the Hideo Kojima Memorial O Tourist Trap <laughs> Award. Kojima's not dead, but, you know, memorial. <laughs> <laughs> we're Yeah, he's in our memories whenever we think of O Tours in is. games. That is accurate. That is absolutely accurate. And so really what this award is about is, you know, which game do we play where we felt the presence <laughs> of the developer, maybe even more than we would want to. Yep. Um, if you remember back when Michelle played Metal Gear Solid, she had quite a strong reaction to uh, Hideo appearing on the screen oh where it should God, say video. Oh my God, I about that. <laughs> oh my God. And I don't think we ever, we might never see that. Oh, that's so bad. That sort of authorial presence oh in our God. face in a game again. But we do have a few contenders this year. Uh, these cover games and other media. And so our nominees are David Cage for Heavy Rain. Mm-hmm. Michelle wrote Joe Blow here, <laughs> meaning Jonathan Blow for Braid. Uh-huh. Toby Fox for Undertale. And then Uva Bowl. Uva Bowl. For House of the Dead, the Lord. movie. Lord. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, Uva Bowl is like, you know, it, that's 50% a joke, but no, not he's, entirely. No, he's very in your face. He's And he's very present, I'll say. Toby Fox, you definitely feel his personality in it, not to the, you know, I think when I when I think O'Tourist Trap, I want to think the O'Tourism has done a disservice to this game. Yes. And I don't think that there's too much of that in in Undertale. No, yeah, there is there is I think an authorial presence, there's yes. the presence of a single writer. Yes. Um and a and a perspective and a worldview and a sensibility, but it is not overbearing. I think Toby Fox, that game does a lot of clever things, but I don't think it, it the game is not overtly proud of itself for yes. its cleverness. Yes. Or I, for its sense of humor. I agree with that. Uh, which is a hard, which is a, a kind of very hard um, balance. Yeah, especially with a game as like concepty as yeah. Undertale, you know? So I've decided new award, Toby Fox, you get best auteur award. <laughs> Only good auteur. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. Yeah. Okay, um, so now we got David Cage and uh, and Jonathan Blow. Yeah, and listen, there there's a lot of Jonathan Blow in Braid, and there's a lot of Jonathan Blow in the world generally, <laughs> but not as much as there is David Cage, dude. So the thing is, David Cage, it was had the the most felt absence of someone on the team who would tell him no. <laughs> David Cage, you know, Braid could use an editor for some of its its text entries, but I think the way that 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 sin intrudes on the world generally is is you know a, a bit minimal it drove me nuts but it's not it doesn't doom the game david cage had some big fundamental david cage ideas that shoot this game in the foot whatever whatever good this game had going for it you know the twist about one of the characters you have been playing being the killer 
a whole bunch of a whole bunch of this stuff. Like So it's it's David Cage. It's David Cage. Okay, it's David it's Cage. David Cage. David Cage needs an editor. He needs people to tell him no. Congratulations. Oh boy. Oh boy. Okay, congratulations, David Cage. I guess. Uh now we've got a series of awards that are about bad guys. Yeah. So they've first... all been about bad guys so far, <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> that's that's a good point. <laughs> oh no. Except the soundtrack award. Yeah. Um but first up we have our Biggest Boss, which is our Best Boss Fight Award. Named in order of, in honor of Big Boss. Yes. Yeah. And so the nominees are, according to Michelle, Queen Anne from Bastion. Yeah. Uh, just the final level of Braid with the princess in Braid. I think that's a boss. Yeah. The uh, Colossus of Rhodes from God of War, or God of War 2, Neo Metaton from Undertale, and Photoshop Flowey, also from Undertale. Yeah. So the reason the Colossus of Rhodes is on this is that I'm not... So that's like the opening set piece of, of mm-hmm. God of War 2. And the thing is, I don't know that that game ever gets better than it is in those opening moments. I Sure, yeah. So I'm, it's on there, but it can't win because it's like a, a good boss that like makes the rest of the game look worse in comparison, which is like not how bosses should work. That's what, that's a, if you take the literal boss. Sure. Listen, don't get me started on the literal meaning of boss. You know my feelings about this. Okay, let's, let's get okay, the Okay, the best boss fight for sure of these is Neo Metaton from Undertale. Oh, okay. I had a good ass time fighting that guy. I love that character. I talked about how I love that character. Getting to have a fun boss confrontation with a a strong enemy that you vibe with is such a blessing in games. I'm having a good time. I'm fighting a psycho David Bowie robot. This is the best. This is the best. I'm having a great time. And it's an interesting fight that like progresses with, you know, unique mechanics. You're trying to like drive his TV ratings up by, but that still requires you to like predict how you will be able to respond to his attacks. Like there's so much going on here. It all works. It all supports the big, moment that we're in in the story of that game it does all the things that a good boss fight should do good okay. work good work metaton i want to do a special shout out here for a game that you didn't finish it was one of our grab bag games that i went ahead because i enjoyed it so much and went through it which is metal Ge- metal gear rising revengeance oh yeah senator armstrong the final boss of that game <laughs> is he an actual senator yeah he's a buff senator he's like hagar nice. level senator nice 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 nice, um, nice great boss fight but even better boss theme maybe my favorite final boss theme of any game ever oh shit so possibly surpassing live and learn from sonic adventure 2 oh my god um to the point where actually metal gear rising revengeance would should be in the running for also best soundtrack especially songs that i don't know work would not work as well outside of the game but in the context of that game are perfect okay yeah Senator honorable Armstrong. mention yeah yeah uh, so next we have our Best Villain Award. And so the nominees are Joker from Batman Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character, Tim from Braid. Michelle has written probably Shodan from <laughs> Sasak Shoots. It sounds she, like a good villain. She I never like, encountered I like every, her. I like everything you said about her presence in that game. Uh, Flowey from Undertale. And then Wario from WarioWare. Wario is absolutely the villain of WarioWare, which is great. But he's already gotten naughtiest boy. I know that's. It's thing. not really a villain if you're just a naughty boy. Like a best villain has to be fun to hate. You have to really like be able to dig into your feelings about the villain. Flowey has great depth, um, but I think is is a little bit too much of a complex character to take this category. Same with sort of main character from Braid. I think I probably main character from Braid. You're passing him up. He's like, he, you know, he's noodling on his guitar, writing about oh his God, sad experiences right now right at this now. exact moment. Yeah, um, I think so. But I didn't find him fun to hate. Okay. I, I just found him 
contemptible. Okay. Uh, so who who gets it? So I I think if I had finished System Shock, it might have been Shodan, but I'm gonna have to give it to Joker. <laughs> Good job, Mark Hamill. Yeah, Great performance. Listen, pay that man. Great teeth. Great teeth. Oh my god, there's so many. <laughs> okay, so the Joker gets our best villain, but then surprise, the villain is morphing. It's now the second <laughs> round where we now JRPGs we, we now, <laughs> actual villain reveals itself. <laughs> And now we need to give the award to the true villain, which is different from the best villain. Yeah, this is what was the actual the actual source of evil in in these games. The actual problem. So Michelle has Rux from Bastion. Yeah. The writing in Braid. Yeah. <laughs> Kratos from God of War 2. She has here Donkey Kong 64, which you just played for like 20 minutes. Versus of a all bag. of games. <laughs> uh, the secret rules of tennis. Yeah. From Mario Tennis. We don't know how points work. We don't know how winning works. We have the save system from Crash Bandicoot, the first Crash Bandicoot. Hidden in Tana's secret save levels. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crap. And then, I noticed, Michelle, I added Nerdle <laughs> from Spelunky, from my playthrough of Spelunky, who just took a great run of mine and brought it all to hell. And all your resources, like 10,000 gold. <laughs> Oh man, that game's good. Um, okay, so for for true villain here, I have to go with my gut. What what do I remember as being the actual like the actual crime in, in these games? Um, and I think you're going to be surprised by this, but I have to give it to Rux from Bastion. Oh, Rux, that is the gentle old man, the tech solutionist <laughs> from Bastion. I just that something about that like I don't even know if this is in, intentional or if this is what I'm bringing to the game, but like Rux being the true villain of Bastion feels so important to me. Like I will defend that reading until I die. And so I have to give it to him just because like it's everything I want a true villain. You have to sort of dig to see it as villainous. You know, the the horrible save system in Crash Bandicoot, that's just villainy on its face. And I just, yeah, Rux is, is great in that game and also just an awful, awful person. Uh, so it's great. him. Congratulations, Rux. Yeah. You're the truest villain of the year. Yeah. And with that, we'll take another break, and when we come back, we'll do the second part of our gift exchange. Be right back. Okay, we're back with our second gift exchange game. This time it was a game that Michelle gifted me. Yep. I was so excited to give you this, especially after our conversation about Blade Runner, where you were talking about, you know, how you wanted more opportunities to play more sort of uh, different takes on detective games um, that, that sort of pushed the player in different ways. And I had very recently finished this and you know, sort of had debated about whether you would like it. But after hearing you talk about that stuff, I figured, okay, it's time. It's time to give you Paradise Killer. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was perfect timing for Paradise Killer. So if you don't know what this is, this is a an open world mystery game slash platformer slash visual <laughs> novel. Um, you play as an investigator named Lady Love Dies. Love and, her. And just like just be forewarned, all the characters have names like this. Like there's like 
Dr. Doom Jazz, Crimson Acid, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, uh, all these stupid names. No, Witness to the End. I know his name is Witness to the End. I was making a joke about how stupid <laughs> right, his name right. is. Um, and, and here's the thing. This is starting a trend because we're actually going to be playing a game with stupider names for next time. <laughs> um, the anyway. Intense vaporwave vibes in this. Yeah. Um, anyway, so you play this investigator who has been called on to solve a locked room mystery. And so the lore of this world and the premise of this game is is wild. So it takes place uh, on Paradise Island, which is a realm outside of reality where a group of immortal beings known as the Syndicate are trying to create a perfect island so they can resurrect their ancient gods. Yeah. And so like they kidnap humans from Earth to serve as their citizens. But when the island fails, the humans are sacrificed and their souls are used to build the next island. Anyway, this game takes place after <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this game takes place after Island 24 has failed. But during the night of the sacrifice, before everybody was able to migrate to the next island, Island 25, the syndicate members responsible for migration, so basically like their government, known as the council, are all murdered. Yeah. And it's up for LLD to solve the case. So if you're listening to this and find all of that lore terribly off-putting, I did it first as well. And so I'd say just bear with it. The opening like cutscene is very lore-heavy, and I found just very alienating it's the game is ultimately way less obnoxious than it sounds and the lore is actually kind of interesting yeah i probably worth mentioning i actually bounced off this game the first time i tried to play it i think because of the density of figuring out what's the council what's the syndicate what is up with like everything is has Mm -hmm. these huge names so i got you know maybe an hour into it the first time i tried to sit down with it and then walked away and just didn't come back but then you know, maybe a month later, someone came back to it and played it all very quickly. Yeah, like it's it's overwhelming at first to remember everything. Yeah. The thing that I was the most worried about was that, and I, I'm kind of always worried anytime mysteries take place in fantastical worlds, because for mysteries to work, they need rules that are legible. Yes. And anytime there's like a mystical, fantastical world with all this weird lore, there's always like a temptation, it seems, on the part of the writers to make the mystery hinge on this twist related to something about the world and something weird about how the world works that isn't actually communicated to us early. Yep. Right. So, so I was just expecting a bad mystery. Sure. No, not what I not what I got. I think um, there are some quirks to this world and how it works, but it's all laid out pretty clearly and pretty clearly upfront. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not like that thing where you know you're of this world. So, like Lady Love's Eyes understands kind of how this world works, so she's not surprised by anything. And so that that kind of helps, right? Um, where at least you, like the, your player character, has like the knowledge to navigate this world properly. So yeah, I think the actual mystery works well. So if anybody's hearing that lore and is just like, oh my god, I can't, I can't <laughs> deal with this. That's where I was too. I thought this game was gonna. I thought tonally this game was gonna be completely off-putting to me and. In the first five minutes, it was, and then it kind of it hooked me pretty quickly. As I mentioned, it's a mystery, but it's it's open world, which is a great idea. So basically, you start the game, and you're um, pretty much in front of the judge. The judge is telling you to go out, and the judge is saying, "Okay, like you go out in the world. Here, here are the people who are left on this island who have not migrated or have not been killed or been yet. killed. Yeah, <laughs> just go and explore. And whenever you're ready, whenever you think you figured out what's happened to the council, come back here and we'll start the trial. Yeah. And you can come back at any time and start the trial. And, you know, the whole world is open to you pretty much from the get go. You can kind of go anywhere, follow, you know, whatever leads you want to follow. That's a great idea. It does, I think, limit the kind of narrative the game can tell because nothing really severe about the world state can ever change Mm -hmm. because it is this open thing. And Mm -hmm. 
in order to make it open, you know, there there have to be some kind of limitations. So I don't know, maybe implementing something like doing this, but implementing like a day system. Because mm. um, I, I recently played Disco Elysium, and Disco Elysium has this day system where, you know, the world state will change every day, more or le- more or less, it changes every day. And I think and I think that works because at least then you can you know have the openness, but also have some movement within mm-hmm. the world. Because here, really, characters are all pretty static. Yeah. But I think it makes up for it by the open worldness. And I really, and as I mentioned before, there is a lot of platforming involved. You can, <laughs> it's a secret platformer like Umarangi. And, you know, I really enjoyed kind of going through this world and, you know, platforming through this world. And it would have been much less interesting if it was just walking, if there wasn't the platforming. Like, I actually like, hmm. like bouncing through this world and getting up on rooftops. And like, there is often a good payoff for doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Often like clues, like if you if you see a huge building and you try to figure out a way to get on the roof, chances are there's a clue up there that's actually relevant to the plot and to the mystery. So that that was really nice. Clues by and large are in logical places, but they're also in places that are hard to reach, which is a which is a nice balance. However, this game has I, I I'm trying to figure it out. So this game has certain things about how it gates the player that make no sense to me. Okay. So this game has like, it has an economy Mm -hmm. with these things called blood crystals that you can, that you can pick up along the way. And these are like the primary collectible of the world. The world is just like saturated with them. They're just kind of everywhere. You use them for fast travel. And you you use them for fast travel. And I have a problem with that. Okay. And use them for fast travel and use them to unlock like mobility options from these foot baths that you find around around the level so for example you're gated out of your double jump from the beginning instead you have to like stumble upon a foot bath that will give it to you and then use these blood crystals to unlock it the thing is like that gating makes no, it has no narrative reason because yeah. ostensibly you can go and just access everything if you know it's available right from the beginning in in games gating works because it needs to prevent you from doing one thing because it because the whole system would break down if you did that thing right, before doing right, another right, thing right? right like that's right, right that's the only purpose of gating you out of content right by and large, right? Like the original Grand Theft Auto, it's, um, you know, it wants to constrain you to the first island. So it gates you from going to the third because I, can, I think a bridge is out or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, and there's like a narrative reason for that. And there's a mechanical reason for that. And, it, you know, it really wants to get you familiar with the first part of the island before opening it up and overwhelming you. This game is not like that because if mm-hmm. you wanted, you could just go and grab your double jump, like the first thing you do, grab, you know, grab your mobility options. Like, right. So it, it makes no sense why they're doing this and like why you can't just double jump out the gate. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you have this like a uh, supercomputer that you use to help you solve the solve, Starlight. Yeah, solve the mystery called Starlight. And it, the it just there's like these locks that you have to solve sometimes, which are just these like non puzzles. Oh, these yeah. non puzzle yeah, yeah, yeah. puzzles. Yeah, where you have to like. I don't know. It's like, I don't, how do you even describe what you do? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you have to make a picture by putting parts of other pictures together. It's, it, it's not, it's not necessary. They reuse a lot of the same images. So you're really just doing the same thing over and mm-hmm. over. Yeah. Um, but you can't even do all of those from the beginning because you need to find starlight upgrades to be able to get, you know, the, um, like, like the, puzzle pieces. Yeah. Kind like of, the yeah. database of, yeah. of, of appropriate pictures. So you can actually make the ones that you need. Yeah. But again, you could do all that from the beginning. So there's no reason to gate you out of that at the beginning. Right. So, so I just don't, I don't get why you're gated out of all this stuff. The game, it's like, I wonder, like, is the game so insecure with itself thinking that the player won't want to explore the world that they have to put all of this artificial gating in 
and put all these kind of useless collectibles everywhere. So you feel like you're getting upgrades and that's like a little yeah. like, oh, I'm improving. Yeah. Or like to prompt the player to explore everywhere. Like, did they think that maybe the mystery wasn't enough that, you know, we have to put these blood crystals literally everywhere to make the player want to explore all these areas? And so I don't know, there's like a lack of confidence there in the actual quality of the mystery and 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 trusting the player that the player actually will want to go and look everywhere because they're actually invested in solving this mystery. Well, and that's interesting because I think this game is so confident in so many other, like the way it approaches sort of its lore and its world and its aesthetic, like it's very like, yeah, you're going to get into this or you're not. And we do not give a shit about so many other mm-hmm. elements. So it's, that's, that's a really great point. And it's, it sits in a funny way alongside yeah, some like, other stuff. And like, it didn't really bother me. It's like, okay, I could deal with Whatever, this yeah. except for two parts. Okay. So one, I got super frustrated because there's there's a number of like side quests throughout. So sometimes you'll stumble upon like a ghost character mm-hmm. and they ask you to do a little fetch quest for them. By and large, the reward for these kinds of fetch quests are two more blood crystals. If you're lucky, you get right. two. Sometimes you just get one. And you get so many blood crystals there that you, you don't really need them. But what the game doesn't communicate to you is that one of these side quests actually leads to a necessary starlight upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, there's these vending machines around the island that the game doesn't really give you any incentive to buy drinks from these vending machines. And they cost blood crystals. They cost blood crystals. The drinks don't really do anything. Yeah. And so you're like, why would I spend money on that? But it turns out you need to do that because to to unlock another starlight upgrade, which the game does not really communicate to you. So you put so the game puts so much useless stuff around and communicates to you from the beginning that this stuff is kind of meaningless. Right. But then so there's actually jokes on you. It's not meaningless Unless. because in these two specific instances, <laughs> it's actually necessary to progress. Right. And that is bullshit to me. Yeah. Okay, fair. Um, And then this part's kind of on me, but the part that I really got annoyed at <laughs> before I really figured out this economy is, I don't know, I got to one of these palaces. The, there's palaces. Don't yeah. worry about it. This, this game looks great. It's, yeah. The world is really cool. It's really fun to, to walk through. There's just like, yeah, the architecture is so interesting. You, All the character I, design is great. And again, like that's the, that's the thing. It's like, I want to explore this world. You yeah. don't need to put useless shit around yeah. to compel me to explore. I just want to see it all. Yeah. Anyway, this this one palace has like a huge like tapestry thing that's clearly missed like with these um like these holes in it. And you go up to it and you're like, oh, it's missing gems. Clearly, like gems have fallen out. So you need like eight or ten of these things. It's like a lot. And they're strewn about the world. And I, you know, I'm getting all these red gems. And I'm like, okay, I must like, I'm sure if I put these back in, it's going to unlock like a secret passage or something. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. It feels like it'll be something big. Yeah. And so I'm doing all this after like a long time. I finally find them all. I go back. I'm so happy. It's like, what's it going to do? What's this going to unlock? I mean, it's going to give me some great reward. I put them in two blood crystals. <laughs> And she's like, that sucks. <laughs> it's just I was like, just like, I'm not doing that. It's just like, that's such terrible player feedback. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, I'd rather nothing. Right, right. Than a, than a spit in my face. <laughs> Take your shitty blood crystals and go. Um, yeah, so it's like that part, that part really aggravated me. But ultimately, I think the if you're, I don't, it's one of the things where you can't really say anything about the story because yeah. anything you say is a spoiler. Um. But I, I really liked this approach to the mystery, even though I think at the end of the day, like it's a quote unquote open world mystery. The openness is really just an illusion. Mm-hmm. It is more or less a linear game. You can, you know, you can do the trial at any time and accuse people with incomplete evidence. But the game is very clear when you're still missing evidence. Yeah. Also, uh, like there is a right answer. Like this is yeah. like one of the things that when I was playing this game, I was worried it would do is 
which like could have um it could have been cool. There could have been a way to handle this well. But have this thing where like there's evidence incriminating a ton of mm-hmm. different people and like you just sort of have a real you construct so, the thing. So the game it hints and it it sets you up for that too because yeah. it it often like very explicitly says there's a difference between the facts and the truth. Right. And so you you know you're thinking that at the end okay I'm just going to get all of this evidence that kind of loosely connects and it's going to be up to me to just accuse whoever I want. Yeah. Which would, which is interesting but would make a terrible mystery. Yeah. And and to go back to you know the fact that the game actually very much keeps track of all of the threads and the overarching questions that you're solving and is very clear to you that there's still evidence missing. On the one hand, like part of me is like, okay, in an open world mystery, I kind of wish it didn't do that so that I would be able to decide that I've I've got enough. I've got enough. Like that's on me. But also I think it's a blessing that it does it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like sort of a necessary concession yeah. to the gameness of it. Yeah. Because you know? otherwise I need to keep a notepad and I yeah. know I'm not doing that. Yeah. We've been over this. <laughs> I think Return of the Obra Dinn, I think, is the only game I've ever notepad. You've been happy yeah. to have a notepad at hand. Yeah, totally. But again, you know, but the the like like I said, like the game does tell you that there's a difference between the truth and the facts, but at the end there really is, I think, like a canon answer. Yeah. Right. And and so the truth really isn't as flexible as the game would have you believe. I don't necessarily know if that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think because of what I want from a game like this, I would much prefer a satisfying mystery than a clever mechanic that lets me sure. determine the end of the mystery. Sure, that's what you've come to this for. Yeah. So the, did you... The game does, though, leave you... I won't say too much about this, but it does kind of leave you at least, even if you find everything, with one major choice about whether you want to implicate certain characters or not. I was going to ask about but, this. Yeah, there are some characters that you learn are kind of maybe implicated or could be implicated or probably are implicated, but you can have kind of an airtight case without implicating them. Yeah. And then that's kind of the the big the big choice that is that's actually up to you so without getting into it did you implicate those people no. or not no no i did you're an asshole no these people no okay here's the thing here's also part of what here's part of what i really like about this game is like i think this this aligns so closely with my experience of working in the legal system partially because of how it scopes the scale of like what contributions to the the crime or the evil in this mm-hmm. world are caught by this system and what ones aren't mm-hmm. so like a thing that you can't do is like give anybody any shit for sacrificing thousands and thousands of human beings to like turn this over to the next world like you as lady love dies are somebody who's like complicit in the horrors well, so, okay, of this universe so, here, so here's the thing here's my actual problem with this game especially like it, it's kind of really i think politically interesting to think about this game in relation to morangi yeah um because, you know, like in the abstract, this game, like Umarangi, is also like about the exploitation of the disenfranchised. It's about kind of end of time, yeah. what that means. But this game asks us to be part of this elite and to not really think too hard about the implications of the overall mythos, which is the fact that all of these people basically enslave humans and then slaughter them. To like resurrect very ambivalent or possibly evil gods. Yeah. And like, the game doesn't seem to think too critically about the political situation that it sets up. Um, like its morality is inherently abhorrent. Yeah. But it's nonetheless like, here's some cool characters and they make funny jokes. And, you know, you have to kind of like sit in this world. Well, and it's sort of it's sort of about like decadence and decay and including like, you know, sort of a moral decay or like alienation of of that sort of thing. Because like the the syndicate were human. They were humans who created this like basically not quite alternate universe but this pocket universe outside of reality sure where they so it's like 
I think I think so much of it is about the distance these people have been able to put between themselves and But right, but the game puts you aligns you with that ideology. Because Yeah, I mean it aligns like you Lady are, Love Dies with You that. are a member of the syndicate as Lady Love Dies. Yep. And so and where the investment comes from Lady Love Dies and for you the player is less in this larger question of like, is it possible to affect some kind of systemic change in this, you know, this like inherently horrible situation? It's like, no, the interest comes from let's solve this specific mystery. Yeah, well, and to me, I think the reason why that all works for me is because what you have here is like an elite that only cares about their own problems. And like uh, another thing that I that I like about how this game this game talks about like crime in this very like mythical, like almost mystical sort of sense. And and a thing that I like about how this game divides up what are the charges that you're going to lay at trial and what is just happened. But like there's there's one character in particular who did something that did end up contributing to a big source of the crime that was clearly illegal within the rules mm-hmm. of this world but falls into the category of members of this elite doing each other favors that mm-hmm. are outside of the law and therefore never gets caught or swept up in all this. Whereas when it comes to members of this elite, like crossing each other in ways that contravene, like that's what gets picked up. That's the layer that gets skimmed and becomes sure. this big criminal thing. But I mean, yeah, but I, I mean, though, like within the context of this world, letting some people go because you kind of like them is completely morally consistent. Oh yeah. And and the game tells you that that's kind of the good ending. Right. I mean, I which guess you didn't I, get. Yeah, no. Um I mean, I think the game also congratulated me on my adherence to <laughs> you know, the 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 high calling of uh prosecuting crime, right? Um and like all of those the way all of those words resonate with me because of my own personal politics, I understand that we're operating in a land of corruption and decay like i i understand from start to finish all of Mm -hmm. these characters as bad and operating in their own like i can i can accept all of that i guess as more like a depiction of like a community of elites who are so far removed from from the consequences of their actions generally as opposed to like i didn't i didn't I, i think i felt less than you did that the game was asking me to buy into that i felt much more like a spectator and and playing a character and still being able to sit separately with my own thoughts in in judgment and sort of like it does definitely ask you to like play and have some fun in this space of like fountains of human blood like mm-hmm. it, there's like a this game is dark i like i don't i don't know if the game is making an ironic comment as much as it as as much as you're suggesting or maybe even as much hmm. as the developers think it is okay because it is like an inherently pleasurable place to be and maybe that's the point mm. but i do think like you're you as the player are invited to okay here's here's this like premise you're going to buy into this premise and you're going to learn to like these characters mm-hmm. i mean i think it makes sense that this isn't talking about systemic change in that context because which of your characters in this would want systemic change right is is part of the thing like this is this is the group that is benefiting from the the catastrophe right in some mm-hmm. in some sense so i think i i appreciate the the sort of like semi nihilistic and like quite dark commitment mm-hmm. to like no these people do these people feel 
nothing mm-hmm. about, yeah. you know, the... It's definitely just like, I think for me, it was like a tonal whiplash because I played this very close to playing Umarangi and I, sure. I played it very sure, close sure, to playing sure. Disco Elysium. Sure. Which are both very... I think that's also going to be one of my holiday games this year. I've been yeah. waiting to get to that forever. But, but yeah, I mean, this sounds all critical, but I, I think this is a sweet mystery. Like if you're into like, and that's kind of, that's primarily what I want. Like, I want a Do good, you want to have a good wild time for a couple hours and have a good mystery? I want a good, a good game <laughs> yeah. mystery. And this game gave me a good game mystery. I don't... Like, I, I don't think I cared too much about the characters. Like, sure. all the characters are instrumental for giving me clues to solve the mystery. Right. That's what they were in this game. Like, it was very much like, um, even given, you know, all the, like, the aesthetic trappings, at its core, it's pretty bare bones. This is a mystery. Puzzle pieces. Yeah. yeah and the, and everybody, yeah, serves these instrumental purposes. And sometimes that's just what I want from my games. Yeah, that's, man, that's fair. Yeah. So I would I would recommend Paradise Killer. I'm, I'm very glad. I'm very glad I played it. And uh, we're going to take one last break before giving away some final awards and ranking the games. And this gives me an opportunity to play a sweet song from Paradise Killer. Oh, yeah. This was on my Spotify rap (laughs) as one of my favorite songs of the year. (laughs) Makes sense. We'll be right back. And we're back to give out our last few awards. These are, I think, the big boy awards. You know, the the ones that really ask you to reflect on what you've played over the year. The ones for which we'll bother to read out the nominee names rather than just skimming over them, as Jeff Keighley would do. <laughs> We've been reading all the nominee names. I, we have. the ga- Listen, this is a call out for the game awards, not reading the names of nominees just for rude. a bunch of their awards. So disrespectful. It's just rude. Anyway, we would never. We would never. Please continue. But the Game Awards probably also wouldn't have an award called The Black Spot. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they should. This is the award for the worst part of a great game. Nominees are The Joker Final Boss Fight from Batman Arkham Asylum. The Rat and Board from Blade (laughs) Runner. And if if you don't know what we're referring to, go back and listen to the Blade Runner episode. Rat and Board. Blowing Up My Dog from Blade Runner. Yep. Uh, The Cradle in Goldeneye. (laughs) Just that specific last platform that it took us so long to be able to land on. It's, it was embarrassing. The damsel's help screams coming from the controller in Spelunky. Yeah, it's a cute idea, but in practice, it's annoying and it just it sounds inhuman and I didn't like it. <laughs> you have unplayability of System Shock 2. <laughs> I don't know if unplayable is the... I know. It's not going to win this. I just wanted to acknowledge that like... Because this is... A bad thing in a great game, right? And then the games this season, much more than last season, were sort of like, we didn't just play like the big best of the best ever. And so I just wanted to acknowledge, I think there's a chance that System Shock 2 is a pretty good game. Okay. But not for me. And then finally, Sore Palms from Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. My God, it is arm day (laughs) on Kong Island. So... So yeah, so what for you is the worst part of a great game? Which again, we're leaving off a lot of worst parts of bad games or yeah. games that Michelle didn't like so much. That's not that's not the category. Okay, so I decided in in this case to not go with like you know, blowing up my dog kind of blew up my playthrough of mm-hmm. Blade Runner, but you know, I don't 
that Joker final fight. Man, that is the furthest distance between quality of the rest of game and uh and that moment of any of these categories and like boy does that betray the rest of that game i just see you writing your final like the, your ideal final boss fight for that game You're like what if i could have rifled through joker's <laughs> oh my god desk found like some embarrassing poetry that he wrote once and then recited in front of him <laughs> just shame him yeah and him. then he shamed and says commissioner gordon take me away that, but how does the how does the Joker say I'm turning into the Joker? He would turn into the double Joker based on the shame that I gave him. So the black spot is the Joker's final fight. Joker's final I, fight. I, I agree with that. That's a crime. It was bad then. It's still bad. Oh boy. I think I think even you know Rocksteady is pretty ashamed of that fight, and they've kind of corrected it moving forward. They should be. You never get a boss fight that bad again. And it being the last. Oh, just devastating. You get a Batmobile though, which I think is worse. But I digress. <laughs> and now. We have the best moment. And so the nominees for 2021's best moment are the Ura stopping their attack in Bastion. Mm -hmm. Some of the deaths in Spelunky, like triggering the Indiana Jones ball with the idol, accidentally whipping the shopkeeper and having him go berserk. Yeah, let's say the official entry for that is the time I tried to buy something but accidentally whipped the shopkeeper and he went bananas. (laughs) Uh, the point in Katamari Damashi where you accept the king's perspective that everything is just stuff. This is variable for different players, but I think we all get there. The Steeds of Fate in God of War 2. Wow, I was not expecting God of War 2 to show up here. Listen, I'm going to shout out this one moment, which is when these horse statues come alive and move part of an island. It's it's good. That's how this whole game should feel. You have killing the vagrant and dumping the body by accident in Blade Runner. Oh, God. And then... Ethan loses his other kid. Yeah. After Ethan had lost his first kid, losing his second kid and me (laughs) thinking about this mom having to get this call being like, your ex-husband dumbass lost your other and final child. Sean. (laughs) So what was your favorite moment of the year? So the truth is there's no competition for this category. Okay. What is the one thing that I will remember above everything else as a moment where gameplay interacted with themes and interacted with you know mechanics that is the time that i accidentally killed the vagrant and then dumped his body in a dumpster in blade runner whoa and then okay so first of all this came back on me the game threw this back in my face so hard when i was later in the sewers and saw the body drifting down the sewer water right it comes back the game did not need to roast me like that (laughs) but the bigger thing is This turned out to be a moment that changed my entire playthrough of that game, how I understood the character of Ray McCoy. This this is the moment when something really crystallized and and shaped my whole experience Hmm. of that game. So, um, you know, I don't know that it's it's was one that the game intended to be read by me in the way that it was. But that was that was a moment when I really had a, a specific and I think unique experience of of this game. And I loved it, even though it was a mess. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's a great rationale for why this is your final, your favorite moment of the year. And it's surprising to me that it's something from Blade Runner, but I'm glad that Blade Runner is getting the credit it deserves. I think. Yeah, full of highs, high highs, and low lows in that game. And uh, I never killed that vagrant, so I never got to experience this moment. <laughs> I'm just a better person. <laughs> I guess. I guess. And now, finally, to kind of end at least this part of the season. So we do have one more game of the season, which. Well, you can rank it when we're done. Okay. But for now, we're going to do a tier list of all of the games for the year. Michelle's going to rank them from S tier to D tier. Yep. Or I guess from D tier to S tier. We'll start 
yeah. the bottom and work our way up. Importantly, these are only the main games, the games we played all the way through. So gra- grab bay games are not eligible for this. Yeah. And System Shock 2 is also not eligible to be ranked because it was not even close to being completed. I'm not allowed to have a formal opinion on that <laughs> game. So a thing that I said last year about this exercise, and I'm going to say it again, is that I'm ranking these games based on each other in the context of this season. This is not, you know, a game that gets a C on here. I'm not saying that's necessarily a C rank game against all the games that have ever been made. This is, you know, among a, a pretty interesting and engaging cohort. Okay. But these are these are ranked amongst themselves, not considering the games we played last season. No. Last okay. last season was different. So this is a self-contained list yep. where everything is relative to each other. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. it. Okay. So starting with D tier, we have two entries here. Heavy Rain and Crash Bandicoot. These are the two unforgivable blots on this game on this season. Going to see games that had things I liked and things that I didn't. We have Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. You're giving Donkey Kong Jungle Beat a C? Yeah. You just said it was a great game above. It lacked Donkey Kongness in a in a fundamental way that I What is more Donkey Kong than smacking things really hard? <laughs> There's nothing more. It, it, it makes you embody Donkey Kong. It's fun to hit those bongos, but I don't know. How, it's only sort of fun to play that game. And that's, I, that's fatal in a Donkey Kong game. It's Disagree. Okay. You can, you can disagree. Listen, it's not going to be the last time you disagree with this list. I'll tell you that. Jungle Beat is better than Donkey Kong Country. It's more oh fun to God. play. Oh, my God. Now you're just saying hurtful things because you're mad. It's more fun to play than Donkey Kong okay, Country. Okay. C tier. Continuing on. Uh, God of War 2. Braid. Braid is a C tier? Braid is C. I have to put Braid at C. It has a very good core idea of its mechanics, but a lot of the... I just... this I did not have fun playing this game. <laughs> it stressed me out. It's like... It has the, the MRA smell all over it, and I, I it okay. belongs in the C. Mario Sports, all of those. I just simply cannot put those higher than C in light of some of the other games that we played this year. And don't get mad. WWF No Mercy. Oh, you're now you're just trying to provoke me. No, I'm not. We had so much fun. We yeah, we did have fun, but compared to a lot of these other ones, I just don't I feel like we also had all the fun we were ever going to have with that game in the couple no, hours we played. You just played hate with it. athletes. <laughs> also, why don't like sports. Was the title of an entire arc we did. Okay, so that's a C tier. You can feel about how about it how you need to feel about it. I feel something about it. Okay. B tier. GoldenEye 007. Batman Arkham Asylum. WarioWare. Bastion. And Tony Hawk Pro Skater. So these are all good games. These are all basically good games that have some uneven points, and I just could not justify putting them higher than B. Tony Hawk's got to go higher. On your list, Tony Hawk can be whatever Again, tier it needs to be. he hates athletes. <laughs> A tier. These are games that I felt some good feelings about. Blade Runner and Undertale. These are both... I think these are both great. S tier. There's only one S tier game this year. And it is unimpeachable. You can't tell me shit about Katamari Damashi. That is, this is a game that might have been S tier for me on last year's list. Mm. Um, I love in my soul Katamari kind of Damashi. That's where we started the year. It was just downhill from there. <laughs> well, no, I mean, there's no way, there's no way to predict that, right? We got, you know, 
Blade Runner was mid season. Undertale was late in the year. We got some. We got some really good high points here. Uh, hey, I'm looking at the list here. Uh, is Spelunky above S tier? Oh, I, I regret to report that Spelunky is B tier. <laughs> that was the most anticlimactic. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were building to something. No, no. You thought I was going to put Spelunky above Katamari? Yeah. Katamari is unimpeachable. So that's your that's your podcast game of the year. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is it is it is simply there's not a bad word to be said about it. Okay, fair. Yeah. I'm not gonna disagree with that. Yeah, that game rules. No, no, you know, suggestion about the value of any sequels. I'm agnostic on all of those, haven't touched them, probably won't. I think this is just such a beautiful, tasty, weird little nugget of gaming perfection. Good. It's the it's the game we need. Yeah. Yeah. So is Umurangi. Play Umurangi. Yes, and Paradise Killer. Yeah. They're all good. All right, I think that's going to do it for us. And that's a wrap on our 2021. Uh, not our season, as we mentioned. We're going to have uh, one more episode. Maybe it'll overtake Katamari. May- maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Um, but yeah, that'll be in January. So this is a wrap for us for this calendar year. Um, thank you for coming on this journey with us. Thank you for listening to the show. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, as always, please do us a favor by rating and reviewing us on, uh, whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. Uh, but yeah, as Michelle said, we're not done with this season yet. We do have one more game. We talked, we said what it was last time. It's another game that's in Michelle's wheelhouse, it is Final Fantasy Tactics. It is a long game. A hundred hours of <laughs> majesty. <laughs> We're getting through it. And uh, we will talk about that as our first game in the new year. So we'll see you in the new year after Michelle has played Final Fantasy Tactics. Because knowing your Goth Guard Gafgarians from your Dice Dargs is an essential part of being a gamer.